Thanks, Livy. Hey, guys, I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. Uh, yes, I have got a moustache for November, so uh, there's no question time tonight, but uh, come and compliment me later. Uh, and can I just commend Captivate to you all? It'll be so good for your heart to be there next Saturday. So if you're, if you're not doing anything, get there. If you are doing something, cancel it so you can get, get there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word tonight. Uh, we come here recognizing our great need to hear from you, that without you revealing yourself and speaking to us, we'd be in the dark. And so we pray now that you would help us to think about living well in these last days as we wait for the return of Jesus. Amen. Well, the book of 2 Peter has been a great reminder for us, hasn't it, about living for the return of Jesus. The book has that as the kind of central key hope that Jesus will return, that God is keeping his promises, that he's not slow but patient, and calls us to live backwards from that moment. It's a life that, and a hope that actually shapes the way we live. It shapes um, uh, making every effort to live holy lives. It shapes the way we come to God's word and depend on it. It shapes the way we push away false teachers and hold on to the truth. That's what we've seen over the last few weeks, isn't it? But it's a, it's a, a word as well and, and a book that reminds us that it's going to take work. That actually as we come to the word of God and as we come to live lives that actually want to be faithful to God, it's going to take work. It's actually partly our responsibility, isn't it? See, God has done the work in us. He saved us through his son, Jesus, but he's actually called us to be part of it. He's given us responsibility under him to be part of what he's doing growing us. That's a great joy, but it's also a little bit scary. And that's kind of what I want to think about with you all tonight. Uh, that waiting well for Jesus to return means that we'll have to be intentional if we're going to wait well. Okay, this is the big idea of tonight's passage. In the 1960s at Stanford University, there was a psychologist whose name was Walter Michel. Uh, he was a great uh, kind. Of, he set up this experiment which has been kind of replicated throughout the world in years since called the Marshmallow Experiment. Has anyone heard of the Marshmallow Experiments? It's the experiment where they get preschoolers and they sit them down, they put a marshmallow on the table in front of them and they say, hey, if you can wait 10 minutes and we'll go, when I, after 10 minutes we'll come back and we'll give you a much better reward, you know, lots of marshmallows or something. And then they sit the kid down and then they see if they've got the kind of the self-control and the delayed gratification to hold on and get the better reward and, and, and not eat the marshmallow. Um, and so they, you know, lots of the kids eat it, but some of them don't, and they're kind of testing where these kids are at with their delayed gratification. But what they do is they then uh, follow these kids for 20 years, so like longitudinal study, and look at how they function in their life after 20 years. And what they found is the ones that were able to have the delayed gratification as preschoolers, they're like... Uh, outworkings of success or the like measurements that you would use like mental health, physical health, IQ, job satisfaction, career, all these kind of different, they were a lot higher for the ones that could have that delayed gratification. See, it, it reminds us that actually the, the waiting, even though it was hard, actually leads to something much better, a much better reward, and actually leads to better outcomes in their lives. And I think what Peter's doing through the book of 2 Peter is he's trying to show us that this is also true of our lives spiritually. 
If we can hold out for the reward that is ours, the new life that we have in eternity with the God who made us and loves us, if we can live in light of that reality and and say no to things in this world that might be good but that will actually take us away from God, we will have far better spiritual outcome. Life with God forever, that's a much better reward. It's kind of showing us, though, that that's going to take work. We need to be intentional to hold out and to wait well with that future hope, that future reward on our minds. It can be hard to wait well, but it is so worth it. And so let's have a think about what it looks like to wait well as we come to the end of the letter. Pick it up with me. Here's the first point, waiting well, verse 14. See, what does Peter say we're to give ourselves to as we wait? To holiness, to holy living, to living God's way. See it there, verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. By the these things, Peter is referring back to what he's just said in the last few verses of chapter 3 beforehand, which is the new creation. The new heavens, the new earth, the renewal of all things, the righteousness of Christ in us complete. That's what we're waiting for. That's the these things that now drives what he says to make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. Now, they're funny words, aren't they? Spot and blemish. Have you heard them before? You might have if you've been reading your Old Testament because this is Old Testament language. Okay, without spot and blemish. These are the words that are used to describe the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. Leviticus 22. Have a look on the screen. Any man of the house of Israel or of the resident aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether they present payment of vows or free will gifts to the Lord as burnt offerings, must offer an unblemished male from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order for you to be accepted. You are not to present anything that has a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. <clears throat> Do you see that unblemished with defect? That's the kind of same word as spot. Um, the idea here is that God gave the people of the Old Testament, the Israelites, a way to deal with their sin, their rebellion, their brokenness before God. And it was that they could go and take an animal that was perfect, no spot or blemish, and sacrifice it. And its life would take the place of the Israelites' life. Because the punishment for rebelling against God, for deciding to go your own way, not God's way, was death. And so that animal would take the punishment that the Israelites deserved, sacrificial death, and, and God would allow that sacrifice to be, help them be seen as now clean or holy or, or right before God. Okay, And it had to be a perfect animal because an imperfect animal can't even deal with its own imperfections, let alone the imperfections of a human. And so what is, what is Peter saying here at the end of the letter? Is he saying that we need to be perfect? That we need to have a perfect faith and be seen as perfectly without spot or blemish, holy, set apart, separate, God, special, like perfect. Is that what he's saying here? No, that's not what he's saying. Okay, we need to be very clear. Peter, throughout the letter, has been trying to show us that a saving faith is only something that Jesus gives us. Here's what he says at the start of the letter, first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, To those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, faith is something given to you. And how does it come to you? Through the righteousness of Christ. You don't earn it. Only Jesus can give it to us. And in fact, Hebrews 10 picks up on this idea and says that Jesus is the once and for all perfect sacrifice. 
He is the sacrifice for us who makes us clean, makes us holy, makes us acceptable in God's sight. We don't do that in our own lives. Okay, it's only Jesus. I want to try and illustrate this for us. Uh, imagine with me you're out at like Piha, one of the western surf beaches, and you go out the back and you're swimming and suddenly a rip like kind of takes you out like far out the back. Okay, you're out in the waves and they're kind of like coming over you and you're struggling to swim and, and it's looking bad, right? You're on the edge of drowning and, and what can you do? The only thing you can do is kind of put your hand up and hope that the lifeguard sees it. And the lifeguard does see your hand, and they get on their jet ski, and they kind of come out to you, and they grab you as you're drowning from out of the water and pull you onto the jet ski and drag you back, you know, take you back into dry land, and, and they've rescued you. Okay, now imagine that's happened to you, and you're then telling your kind of family or friends about it afterwards. Now, it would be weird language to use to say, hey, just earlier today, me and the lifeguard partnered to save me. Right? That would be weird, right? You wouldn't say, you'd say, the lifeguard saved me. Uh, you wouldn't say, oh, I put my hand up to, to ask for rescue, and the lifeguard came and rescued me, and so we both were part of me being saved. You wouldn't do that, because the, the power of you putting your hand up depends solely on the lifeguard. Right? Your hand up, if there's no lifeguard, has absolutely no power to save you. It's only the fact that as you do that, if the lifeguard sees it and comes to your rescue, then you've, you've been saved. But it's not anything that you can do. That's how the Bible describes our faith in Jesus and saving faith. It's not, a, it's not a faith that is a work, but it's a faith that relies wholly on Jesus to rescue us. If you're new to Christianity, you need to understand this. You don't do something. You don't even do 1%. It's not like Jesus does 99% to save you, and you've got that 1% to kind of meet him there. No, no, your faith is not a work in and of itself. It has no power to save. It is 100% the work of Jesus. His work dying for you to make you right before God. You don't bring anything to the table. You do need to ask for saving. You do need to have faith. But that in and of itself doesn't actually do anything to save you. It's Jesus, the one who you have your faith in, who saves you. Okay, so Peter's not saying that you need to do something as part of being saved and made holy. God does that for you through his son. He's fully responsible for your salvation. And so what is it that Peter's saying? I think what he's getting at is the fact that if Jesus has saved us, if he's made us new, if he's worked in our lives to bring new life and give us his spirit, then we need to live in line with that reality. We actually are responsible as saved people to live that out, to live as saved people, to fight sin, to listen to God, to, to put a put aside the things that are hindering us, that will slow us down and distract us and take us away from King Jesus. See, this is exactly what the false teachers in the letter of 2 Peter fail to do. And the results are awful. Flick back a page, keep a thumb here, flick over uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what these false teachers do. It says, They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They, un they seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse. Do you see the, the, the call to the, the one who has been saved 
is to live holy. And that's exactly what these false teachers fail to do. They are the spot. They are the blemish in the community of the saved people of God, taking people away. They're doing the exact opposite to what a Christian would do. See, what's the sure sign that you have trusted fully in the finished work of Jesus to save you? Well, it's actually that you now want to live differently. It's actually that the way you live starts to change. Not that you become perfect all of a sudden, but the sure sign that you have been saved by God and been made holy is that you want to give yourself to living that out. You want to live a a, a holy life, a a set-apart life. So you start to care more about what God thinks and less about what you think or what other people around you think. And it's the opinion of God and what he says is good that matters most in your life. And slowly but surely, you'll start to fight sin. Again, not in perfection, but that's the sure sign that you have trusted and have a saving faith in Jesus. I don't know if any of you guys ever went when you were younger on a school trip to the sewage plant. Did anyone, did anyone do that? Is it just an Aussie thing? Okay, a few people. All right, all right. A few people have done that. I'm glad a few of you guys. It's kind of like the, the school excursion that you're like not really looking forward to. You like go to the sewage plant, you kind of walk around, they show you how it's all processed and stuff. But it stinks, right? Come on, we're not going <laughs> to deny that. And so imagine with me, right, you're on this trip and you're at school or whatever and um, you're mucking around on the walkway and suddenly you like fall over the rail into like the sewage vat, okay? And you're like, Wally, and you, and you actually get knocked out. You become unconscious and hit your head as you go down into the vat and you're kind of just like in there. Now, what would be the sure sign that you have come back to consciousness, come back to life, come back and, and, and uh, alive again? It would be that you're trying to get out, right? You don't want to swim around in the muck anymore. You're trying to get out of there. You're struggling. You don't want to be in the sewage anymore. That's, that's what Peter's kind of describing for us here. The Christian life is not that the, the living God's way saves you in any way, but it's a, it's a sure sign that you have been saved, that God has given you his spirit and he's worked in you to bring about new life. And you don't want to live, Peter calls it the corruption of the world anymore. Some of us here tonight, we might be swimming around in the muck and not even caring. That might be you tonight. You're, 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 you're flirting with Christianity. You're flirting with Jesus and dabbling into it. But you're swimming in the muck. And you're not actually interested in listening to God or trusting the saving work of Jesus. And it doesn't even smell that bad to you. Peter's calling you tonight, if you hear these words, to, to stop mucking around with Christianity. To, to come to Jesus and have a saving faith means making every effort to actually live according to the way he's called you. Don't muck around in the things that are corrupting and they're going to drag you down and drag you away from Jesus. Get out of the muck. That's what he's calling us to. For all of us, though, there are so many things, for all of us who trust Jesus even, that are going to drag you down, that are going to distract you, that are going to pull you away from God and towards other things. What we watch, what we listen to, the, so much of our culture doesn't. It actually takes us away from Jesus. It slowly pulls us away. And I think sometimes we think, I've got to make a big grand gesture. I've got to be someone that, you know, I make this big moment and this big decision. And, and that might be, there might be a place for that. You know, throw out your TV, throw your phone away. Maybe there's a place for that. 
But I want to suggest for us tonight that the way that we pursue living a holy and godly life to be without spot or blemish at peace with God is actually in the small things. It's actually in the little habits that you have, the little moments in your life. Those are the moments that are actually quite formative. So your habits over time shape you and you actually become the product of the formative power of your habits at work in your life. And so I think what we need to see as we read a passage like this is what are the habits that I pursue in my life? What are the daily patterns, the things that are either slowly but surely distracting me from Jesus? The places where I'm likely to forget about Jesus or be distracted or, or, or go into living against God's will for my life, even though I know that's wrong and I just, I'm in that situation that just happens time and time again. What are they for you? I don't know what they are for you. You need to work this out for yourself. Here's one that I've found really helpful. Uh, it's to, when I get up in the morning, before I start my day, I want to go to God and hear from Him before I get into other things. Uh, for me, it's either it's, you know, uh, social media or it might be checking the news or it might even be just like looking at my emails and trying to like work out what's, my t- what's on my to-do list for the day. Before I do any of that, I want to go to God's Word and have Him shape my heart and, and see who He is and, and, and line up my life with him, His will as the kind of start of my day. I don't know what that could look like for you, but for me, the habit, it's called Bible before phone, or um, I think Rowan called it Scripture before scrolling. It has a nice bit of a nice ring to it. But to, to spend some time with God to start your day, actually build habits into your life that will draw you closer to God, not take you further away from Him. Here's one thing you can do this week. Go home and think, what, what are the habits? Ask each other tonight after dinner, at dinner. What are the little habits in my life? And, and what's, how can I assess them and just find one? One habit that I could make a change and so get rid of a habit that's taking me away from God, pulling me back into the muck, and start doing a habit that's going to draw me closer to God. Help me to see his heart and his character and his love more clearly. Uh, maybe you could share it with your connect group this week. What's, that? What's one habit? And it takes three weeks to form a habit, right? And so share it and then spend some time asking each other, hey, we've got three weeks, let's keep each other accountable and, and help each other make habits that are going to produce this kind of life that is in response to the saving work of Jesus. What's one habit you could do? It might be for you tonight that um, as you hear about the work of Jesus, you say, hey, I've never actually fully understood who Jesus is. Come and chat to me afterwards. Chat to the person that brought you. We'd love to help you put your trust in Jesus. That could be you tonight. Um, all you need to do is apologize for the way you've lived. Turn to him in trust and thank him. Ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. You could make that decision tonight. But waiting well doesn't just look like doing things. It's also about what we know. In verse 15, we see Peter tells us to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. We saw this last week, didn't we? God has been so patient with this world. The reason Jesus hasn't come back is because God wants more people to repent and be saved. But can I just say here, we know that's true, and if you didn't, haven't heard that sermon, go back and listen to last week. But here, as you think about it for us, God has been patient with you. Think about all the times you fail, all the times you fail to live this way, the sin, the shame, the regret, that, that, that feeling when you go, oh, I know I should have lived God's way and I trust him and I love him, but I've just failed again. In that moment, you need to hear this. God is patient with you and his patience is salvation. 
It's your salvation, as well as people out there who don't yet know Jesus. It's you. He comes to you with forgiveness time and time again. And in Jesus, you are safe if you trust him. God's living and continuing this world and its existence for all of us so that more might be saved. And he just pours out patience time and time again on us. Isn't that great news? That's the kind of God that we follow. He's not an angry God looking down on us. He's a patient God. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us his promises. He's given us his spirit. But I think the central thing that Peter wants us to see is that God has given us his word. It's the second point here tonight. He's given us his word. So pick it up with me in verse 15 again. Peter says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. This is just an aside, but Peter looks at the writings of Paul. This is, you know, in the first century, the apostolic witnesses, Paul, one of the witnesses, Peter, one of the witnesses, and says his writing is wisdom, but it's not just his wisdom. In chapter 2, we saw that um, these, these men that were writing the prophecies of Scripture were doing it spirit-inspired, that the God's Spirit was actually working in them. And so when you read the Bible, it's not just a man's words. It's actually God's words. There's two authors to every book of the Bible, God and a human. Okay, And, and you see it there again in the end of verse 16. Uh, he talks about those that are untaught and unstable. They twist the Scriptures. And, and, but he says, you see it there in the verse 16, the untaught and the unstable twist to their own disruption as they do with the rest of the scriptures. See, Peter's putting Paul's writings here in the category of scripture. And so if you ever hear people say, oh yeah, but the Bible didn't come together and be formed until kind of the, you know, 300 ADs, the third century AD, much later than the kind of first witnesses, uh, take them to this verse and say, no, no, Peter here, one of the apostolic writers of the New Testament, thought that the other author of the letters that were circulating at the time, this is, you know, kind of AD 60, AD 70, while these people are still alive, they, they viewed what they were writing as scripture, in the same category as authoritative from God as the Old Testament prophecies. Okay, the, the, the canon of the Bible coming together is not something that happened 300 years after the first witnesses to Jesus. It was uh, a, a canon that was formed and circulating from very early on in the life of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, and, and so he, that he's convinced that this is scripture. But did you notice there in verse 16, he says he speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction. You see, Peter says they'll twist Paul's words. And he kind of dobs Paul. You feel a bit bad for Paul here, don't you? Like, <laughs> what, I wonder what was in Peter's mind when he was saying, are oh, there some bits of Paul's writing that are like hard to understand? Um, one that I, Romans 7, there's one for me. I've spent years and years trying to work out, wow, what, what is actually Paul saying in Romans 7? You go and read it later. Um, tell me what you think. But here's the point. The Bible is hard to understand, but it's not too hard to understand. It's not so hard that you ought to just give up and say, well, we can't really know what it says, and so let's just agree to disagree when we come to different interpretations. And it means that we have the great but sometimes scary responsibility as Christians of working hard to understand what God actually is saying to us. There's no opt-out 
There's no other way. There's no other method through which God reveals his heart and his plans for salvation than through his word. So you might get a kind of a nudge from the Spirit or an inner feeling, or you might have someone speak a word of prophecy to you. Um, But what do you do in those situations? You need to test if they're from God. 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5, you can chase this up later. Let's let's go there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to show you this. This is really important because I think lots of Christians don't really understand a theology of how the Spirit and the Word work together. 1 Thessalonians 5. I've got to find it now. Verse 19, here you go, don't stifle the spirit, don't despise the prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. What does stifling the spirit in your life looks like? It looks like just assuming it's true and from God without testing it. What do you need to do? You need to take the, uh, that voice that you might hear or that feeling that you might have or that word that someone else says and test it against the word of God. The Word of God is your authority. The Word of God reveals the heart of God, His plans. It shows us who we are. It all comes out of the Word. You need to test everything against God's Word. Okay? Without it, we'd be left in the dark. There's no opt-out. There is no other authority other than the Word of God to reveal God Himself to us. I think we need to hear this because we live in a culture that runs contrary to this kind of way of thinking. We live in a culture that is postmodern, okay? And postmodern, one of the things that postmodernism stands for is the kind of subjectivity of interpretation. If you did uh, English at high school level, you, had, you know you had to study a movie and you have to kind of try and say what you think the movie's saying? Do you guys have to do that or a book? Or if you did kind of English or literature at university, it used to be that people would say, Okay, what is the author trying to communicate to us? And the job of the reader is to faithfully and responsibly try and work that out. But now what people do is they take a text and they say, well, what do I think it means? How do I hear it and how do I want to interpret it? And it's actually this kind of this death of the author, this lack of, I actually don't care what the author intended it to mean. It matters what it means for me today. But I think this is a real danger for us because God has communicated and he does have intentions as the author of scripture and he wants us to know him. We can get it wrong. We get plenty of Christians that say something like, oh, this is too hard. It's too hard to work out what that ancient text means in my modern day context. And uh, let's just agree that we can, you know, there's lots of different ways you could read it. But here we see Peter saying, no, you can get it wrong. If we understand verse 16, we'll see that it's actually possible to get God's word wrong. It's possible to so twist it to fit in with what you believe, but not actually what God is saying, that if you do that, you no longer have the truth. And if you continue to do that, it actually leads you to destruction, not to life. Do you see it there? There are eternally significant consequences for getting the word of God wrong. And so what it means is it matters that we work hard to understand God's word. We actually take the time and the effort to learn how to read it and understand how the big picture of Scripture fits into one story that culminates in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We understand how the books fit together and the different genres and the, the type of thing. And this is the kind of thing that you're going to give your lives to. You're not going to get it overnight, but give yourself to knowing God's Word. It, it's, the only, it's the only way you can know God is through His Word. Notice that the false teachers, they're untaught and unstable. These two go together. The untaught one, the one who doesn't know the word, is on shaky ground. 
They're tossed to and fro. Every time they hear a new idea, they go, that sounds good. I think that must be what God's word is saying. Or, or they, they here's, this is what, there's a kind of a cultural Christian that has their worldview formed by the world around them. And they take that and use it as a lens to interpret and understand the Bible. But that's not how Christians ought to operate. What we ought to do is actually have our worldview and understanding of the world and us and who we are formed by God's word and then take God's word and use that understanding as a lens to understand culture. That's what we're to do, to be taught and stable in God's word. If you don't want to be untaught and unstable, what do you need to be? Knowledgeable and stable. Give yourselves to that so you're not shaky, not lacking confidence. I think there are two kind of dangers here on either end. One danger as we hear this is we say, oh, I've got to, every time I come across something in the Bible I don't know, I've got to like obsessively go on like a, a YouTube or a Reddit or like a Google or like commentaries and just got to work it out because I just can't deal with not knowing something. I've got to know it all immediately. <laughs> and you give like 90% of your like thought and energy to like working out some kind of doctrine. And all the while you forget about living a life of faith and godliness, of being on mission, of encouraging others, because you've so hyper-focused on that one little thing. You don't need to do that. You don't need to feel anxious when there's things that you don't know. But give yourself to a slow, steady progress of knowing God more. But I guess the other danger is that you start to believe the lie that there are, because there are many possible ways to interpret it, they are all valid. That's not, just not true. There is a right way to understand God's word. And we need to be humble and, and say, hey, we might not have it all. We might have our own biases. We might not necessarily have it totally right. But we can be confident. We can say, hey, this is what God's word is saying. And particularly on the core issues of the Bible, you can know for sure that you have confidence that this is the truth. Don't, don't believe the lie that you've got to compromise and every view is just kind of equally valid. So let me try and... Um, What's what's the core kind of foundational truth that you hold and value? If you're a Christian here tonight, take something really core or foundational. What about um, Jesus really rose from the dead, right? That's the basis of your faith and life and Christian being, right? I could show you 10 kind of Christian scholars who don't think that Jesus physically rose from the dead. It's just a metaphor. It's just a a happy image for a kind of new life that we can have spiritually. Or or what about... um, the, the kind of core that drives us to be on mission and reach out, heaven and hell are real, right? If you're a Christian here tonight, I hope you believe that there is an eternity at stake, heaven and hell, that depends on our response to the king of the universe, King Jesus. Whether we accept him to save us or whether we reject him and live in rebellion to him, we will be, uh, there is an eternally significant consequence. But I can show you 10 scholars that are Christian that would say, oh, I don't think heaven and hell are real. Or they're not eternal, or they're just kind of, it's, it's an image to kind of speak about the, the badness of rejecting God. Okay, we need to hold on to the truth of God's word in a world of compromise. We need to be on our guard that people are going to get it wrong, and we need to be able to hold to the truth and, and gently, lovingly try and correct it when we see it. This is what Peter says in verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance that people are going to twist it, Be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. You need to know God's word and the truth it contains well enough to know when people twist it, to know when they're trying to push you off the stable platform of your faith. We need to know it and love it so that we can 
start to be on guard and actually speak into those lies and falsehood that people bring. See, how do we do all of that? Through the Word. Through the Word. That's how we come to know God and know His heart and plans. It shows us how to live. A whole moral system comes from God's Word as we see Him unpack a life of faith. It's all through the Word. That's the key to staying Christian. See, this book, it's just, it's just a book, right? It's just, it's just some words on a page. But as you read it, God's Spirit, who has inspired the human author, kind of brings it to life. And it's living and active and it comes to your heart. And actually, what did we see earlier? God has given us His Spirit. He's in us if we trust Jesus. And so the Spirit's in this Word. He's working through it and He's in our own hearts. And there's kind of this happy cycle of as we read the Word, the Spirit works in our hearts and draws us close to Jesus and helps us fight sin and helps us come back every, and repent when we do sin and turns us again to see Jesus more clearly in His sacrifice in our lives. It, it, it drives the life of the Christian. It all is from the Word. It all comes out of this book. It's not that the words themselves are magic, but the God that it, they reveal to, to the heart of, of a Christian life. What's going to keep you stable and steady and trusting Jesus to the end of your life? It's the Word. It's the Spirit of God at work through His Word in our hearts, warming them, reminding us to come back, to repent, to trust, to believe once again, to respond, to live for Jesus. See, God keeps stirring your faith through His Word as His Spirit works in it to warm you and help you cling to Him with trust. And as the word centers and highlights and points to, what is it, what's at the center of the word? It's Jesus. This is the third point. We're going to finish soon. It's all about Jesus. What do you do every time you open up the word? It warms you to the message of the gospel. The gospel isn't just simply the kind of story that's contained within the gospels of the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. But it's the biggest story of a God at work to save a people. A God who loves the world so much that he might send his one and only son. So look at verse 18. Peter says, last verse of the book. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There's our stable position. What is it to be a Christian to be stable? It's to have knowledge of Jesus. It's to experience the grace of Jesus daily in your life. To know the gift that he's given you of new life with him. To know that you can call God your father. See, the secure Christian is one who's continually moving inwards towards Jesus. Who's continually moving to a place of knowing Jesus more, of growing to love him more, to experience his grace more day by day. There's the life of a Christian. And if that's you, you are safe and secure and, and with God. And it might be that you're hearing this and you're saying, hey, actually, I want to come and experience the goodness and the joy of knowing the grace of Jesus more and more in my life. Yes, do it through his word. Let his spirit warm you and bring you back to him through the word. See, a Christian is kind of like a hot coal. Okay, You have a hot coal burning in the fireplace and it's burning long and bright and hot. It's where it's supposed to be. But you take it away from the other coals, and you take it out of the, the heat source, the fire, and what does that coal do? It gets really cool really quickly until it's just a, a lump of black charcoal kind of sitting on the ground on its own. 
But if you keep it in the fire, it'll burn hot and bright and long. That's a Christian, right? We need to keep coming to the fuel source, the, the heat, which is the word of God. And we need to kind of keep each other in community. We haven't really touched on it too much, but all of the words for you in this passage are plural. This isn't to you as an individual, it's to you as in us as a community to keep each other living for Jesus, loving him in the word and growing in our faith. This is a, a communal, this is what church is. To be a group of people who are hot coals, fueled by the word, encouraging each other to live for Jesus. And you see that just at the end, he gives you the reason for all of it. For Jesus, to him be the glory both now and on the day of eternity. Do you see, this is what you were made for, for the glory of God. This is why you exist. This is why God made the world, so that he might have you trust in his son's life and death in, in your place, and that you might praise him for it. You might see your dependence on the God, the creator who made you. We were made for Jesus' glory, both in this day as we live, waiting well, living holy lives on mission, in faith, and again on that last day. That last day, we'll be able to look at God's plan from the creation of the world through to the end of the world when that comes and say, wow, isn't God amazing? Isn't his plan amazing the way it's come to fruition? Isn't he amazing the way that he saved me to be a part of it? Does that fuel you? Does that drive you to live for the glory of the king? That's what a passage like this ought to do in our lives. And so let's keep going. Let's keep trusting Let's keep growing. Let's keep by God's spirit working in our hearts, by his word that's warming us. Be a community of people that continue to live well in light of that day, that continue to live life backwards. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We sit here tonight just awestruck, awestruck that you, the creator of the universe, would speak to us just blown away by the love and grace of Jesus. What a passion and a joy it is to give our lives to knowing you deeper and experiencing your grace more fully every day. We pray that you would help us to throw off the distractions, help us to get out of the muck, help us to be a community that encourage each other to live for Jesus. We pray for those here among us tonight who don't yet know how good Jesus is. Would you show them just how good he is. We pray for all of us that you would help us to live as we were made for the glory of Jesus, both now and into the day of eternity. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.